It's almost hard to believe, but presidential politics are back. Over the last few weeks, several major names have announced their intentions to run. Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Hillary Clinton. And just like that, 2016 is the topic du jour. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and we're not going to shy away from that topic. Today we're joined by Spring 2015 Institute of Politics fellow Matt Lira. Matt is a Republican strategist who most recently served as the Deputy Executive Director of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. So I guess, first of all, uh, do you have a horse in the race yet? <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, there's a lot of exciting candidates. Uh, I'm still making my final decisions about which way to go. The issues are incredibly important. Um, I'm excited, uh, candidly, for the Republicans to have a very wide, diverse field to choose from. So it's going to be an exciting and very important election. Do you think that the uh, wide primaries like that, do you believe that they produce the best candidates as opposed to when you have somebody who's uh, uh, more or less anointed or, or, you know? I think it has two effects. One, I, I do believe there's, there can be downsides, there can be risks, but I feel that in, on balance, it it's almost like, uh, to use a crude analogy, like spring training for baseball. You can work out some organizational kinks, you can refine your message, you can, uh, you know, optimize the infrastructure and the technology that you're using. You know, a lot of people look back at the 08 campaign in the primary and, and were saying at the time, oh, it's, you know, the Republicans have an advantage because McCain was, was selected faster. Mm-hmm. And this Obama-Clinton extended primary would be harmful when, in fact, in retrospect, it made the Obama campaign that much more efficient, that much more effective. So it can certainly backfire, but I, I'm optimistic that it will be positive for, for my folks this time. What's the most important thing that a candidate in a campaign can be doing this early in the race? Yeah, I think there's two major areas. Uh, the first is just making the right infrastructure moves. Um, and maybe that's not the most dynamic and headline-grabbing area, but it's incredibly important because a lot of the needs that campaigns are going to have in those final days before the election – you know, sophisticated GOTV operations, sophisticated data analysis, uh, advanced messaging segmentation, those are only made possible by having the right infrastructure from day one. And an example of that is having, you know, a single database or a series of databases that are compatible with each other. You know, having uh, cookied your audiences from the beginning so that you can retarget them for uh, advertising down the road, et cetera, et cetera. And so putting that infrastructure in place is the kind of thing that a lot of campaigns will gloss over, and they pay a price for that later, and the smart campaigns are building that into their day one operations. The second is uh, we have seen a fundamental change in how candidates start their campaigns. You know, Both uh, Hillary and then several Republicans have announced via the internet, via email, social platforms, they haven't. There's been less dependence on large-scale uh, kickoff rallies, um, and yet they've managed through those strategies to communicate with millions of people and to dominate the news cycle in a way that candidly just wouldn't have happened 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, for someone who is an advocate for the continued uh, <clears throat> ev- uh, elevation of digital politics, it's an exciting development to see that something as important as the campaign launch, one of the few events a candidate can more or less control, uh, is being put into the digital category. 
it seems like those kinds of events are feeding a vacuum of uh, news coverage where uh, the media is very eager to get onto this this race. Do you think that these kinds of things, the things that happen early on, really do impact what happens later on when people are actually trying to decide who to vote for? Um, yes and no. So you're absolutely right. There, there can be what I call like a storm in a teacup where people kind of obsess over the latest news of the moment and it becomes a you know quote-unquote crisis and you've got to deal with it. But then when you kind of take the long view of the message arc of a campaign, you reflect back on that and say, well, was that really an important battle? Whereas the day it happened, it seemed like the world was hinging on that moment. But on the other hand, you know, campaigns are have been and continue to be a lot about momentum. And momentum is something that is built over time. So these early stories, while not individually fatal or anointing, can actually add up in aggregate, I think, to make a big difference down the road. You know, case in point, particularly in the early states, so the broader population may not be paying attention yet to some of these developments, but maybe the super volunteers are. And so by having good early days, you're recruiting those people to join your cause. And then, of course, later on, they're the ones that are driving your grassroots activity. Mm-hmm. So I think they're, I think it's important for campaigns to take them seriously, but also to have the perspective that you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, and then kind of keep your head you know, focused and uh, on, on the long-term picture of victory or defeat. At this point, where is the policy discussion within a campaign? Obviously, a presidential candidate has to have an opinion on just about everything, and no human is likely capable of that. When do they start developing their kind of full suite of, of uh, policy? Well, hopefully, uh, anyone running for president already has, like, as you say, a vision for the country. Um, so whether or not they know every nuanced detail of how to implement that vision is something that I think it's developed over time. And candidly, even into governance, as you encounter facts and you know negotiate with domestic and foreign leaders. Uh, that said, I think the strongest candidates that we've seen in our history uh, are the ones that can are, are both have and can articulate an inspirational vision for what the country would look like under their leadership. And uh, you know, you and I don't think technology changes that in any way. You, you see that. In, you look back at obviously with the president's 08 campaign, you know Ronald Reagan's campaigns, FDR's campaigns, JFK. I mean these are these are leaders who, you know, I like to say in a, you know, with President Kennedy, we had leaders who told us we could go to the moon and we believed them. I mean that's vision, and I think it's something our con- our country is particularly hungry. Uh, excuse me, I think that's something our country is particularly hungry for, right now and is going to play a major role in this campaign. Uh, in terms of the nuanced policies, a lot of that will come out uh, as the campaigns are unfolded in the debates, uh, meeting with editorial boards and newspapers, encountering voters. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as you work around grassroots politics, and those ideas will begin to get fleshed out by all the candidates. Um, but my hope is that they're not necessarily developing that vision, but that they really have some deeply held belief. Do you think that with the polarization in the country that we have now, that vision, that you know, uh, inspiration, can exist? I, f- I feel like the country's become more skeptical. Yeah, we live in a, in a, in some ways, a cynical age. People have become frustrated by government. You know, I don't remember if it's Pew or Gallup, but one of one of them does a, 
an annual study onto what the biggest problem facing our, our country is, and they've done it for decades. And for the first time, the answer is not education or civil rights or national security or any other issue. The answer that is on most concern to the public is government itself. And that is not an indictment of one politician or even one party. It is a questioning of whether or not our system is even capable of responding to the people's needs. Um, I believe it can, and I just think it needs the right kind of of leadership to bridge those gaps. Uh, because if we just let the partisan polarization continue to play out, uh, it's not going to take us to very satisfying outcomes. Uh, and that's where particularly presidential level leadership is required to inspire people uh, uh, to join together in perhaps new and different ways than we have historically in our politics. It's very challenging to do that, uh, but I think it's what, uh, what is needed. As these campaigns continue, they're going to be more and more removed from the actual day-to-day governance. Uh, we're going to be talking about process, about how the campaigns are functioning, but not necessarily how they would run. Do you think that how a candidate runs his or her campaign actually feed into the eventual governance? Yeah, I, I, that can't be overstated. The, you know, and to some degree, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, we live in a society that's defined by certain media trends and ways which we live our everyday lives, and as that changes over time, that has a huge impact on our nation's politics. Um, ultimately, if you change how people get elected, it changes who gets elected, which changes how government functions in the end. And you've seen examples of this throughout our nation's history, and throughout world history, but even just looking at our own. The rise of radio, for example, made it possible for an entirely different type of politician to become elected to high office. The rise of television um, closed the door for some people, opened the door for others, but it elevated certain traits and skills and liabilities, candidly, to the highest level of political leadership. And what we're seeing now, of course, radio, TV, etc., are still radically important, but the rise of, this, of the digital economy at large is changing the way people raise money and organize campaigns and communicate with the public. And that's ultimately going to elevate different skills than would have been elevated by, say, television ads in 1972 or 76 or 80. And the trick is going to be, well, how will those skills and traits impact government over time? My hope is... Um, that each era has been somewhat defined by what made that media unique from its predecessors. So radio initially was an awkward medium because people were more or less reading or performing as they would in a room without the benefit of electronic amplification, which means they are yelling into the microphone. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And Bing Crosby in the entertainment world, but more, more relevant to this, FDR in politics in America, recognize that I can speak to you as though I'm having a conversation, fireside chat. And that intimacy is how he was able to, and one of the ways in which he maintained the trust with the American people through the Great Depression and through World War II and these difficult challenges of holding a country together behind policies to tackle those challenges. You know, obviously everyone, it was cliche to talk about 1960 and the Nixon-Kennedy debates the rise of television, but recognizing that, you know, just like audio was uniquely important for radio, that the moving image became uniquely important in the television era, 
And so the simple analogy that we've all heard is, you know, Nixon didn't wear makeup and Kennedy did stage makeup during the debates, mm-hmm. you know, but brought that into governance. You know, President Kennedy did the press conferences in a way that they were televised and they started, you know, directly addressing the American people from the Oval Office. And, you know, these were ways in which the encounter with this Cuban Missile Crisis or other challenges, he and future presidents governed in a slightly different way than they would have done in a radio era. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the Internet and you ask, well, what makes it unique from its predecessors? And there's a long list. <laughs> but the ones that I kind of focus on are authenticity, transparency, and interactivity. Because we are at the, when you boil it down, the biggest thing that makes it different is that it's not a one-way communication, but that it is almost always a dialogue, either individually or at scale. And for those dialogues to work well, whether it's in politics or any other sector, they need to be authentic, they need to be transparent, uh, and they need to be timely and interactive. So I believe that the leaders who excel at you know, operating in that environment will be the ones who thrive uh, over time in, in, as we transition to this digital age. It doesn't necessarily mean that 2016 will be the internet election or you know, something as dramatic as 1960. It could happen that way. Uh, but I do think that that transition is well underway in our politics and has been for many years, you know, going back to at least the 08 campaign, if not the 04 campaign, but that our government uh, is still struggling to bring those ad- adaptations into the way they operate. Um, I like to say that politicians have gotten great at presence online. You know, they talk about they created a Twitter page or, you know, they, they meerkatted first. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and these are cool things. I'm not disputing that. But where we struggle and where the challenge really lies is the pre- or the purpose of being on the Internet, mm-hmm. not just the presence. And you know, how can I use these platforms to do the business of government better? How can I use these platforms to make my campaign more genuine, authentic, and engaging to citizens? Do you think the campaigns have done a better job than the government versions. Yeah, I will, yes, uh, and there's still there's still a lot of room to improve on both, but campaigns uh, benefit from the fact that it's a highly competitive, uh, almost startup-like marketplace where their campaigns get created and end within a relatively short time frame, uh, and uh, they're usually small teams that make decisions quickly, for better or worse, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know have to meet goals by a given deadline. Election Day, uh, and you know there's a laboratory of ideas because you have thousands of these campaigns being created every year all across America, and people learn from each other and they see examples, and then they adapt and then they build on that progress. The government, as a you know, it, is an, is a large institution, largely insulated from market forces, um, you know, because it has it's a constitutional system, so. Its transition will be much more deliberative, um, and I think what you see in government is more bursts of innovation. So, like President Obama comes into office, and there's this great burst of innovation. A lot of data sets were made transparent. You know, you look at the work of uh, the former CTO Todd Park, and he, you know, really built some structural changes into the government, and, and his genuine progress has been made in a lot of those instances. But then the natural atrophy and sort of insularity of government kind of slows it down, and then. The next president, I think, hopefully, will have a similar burst of innovation 
uh, to build on the progress. But, um, you know, that is an entirely different kind of change than a campaign world where, you know, you kind of have one staff meeting and you're like, we should podcast. And then everyone's like, let's go do it. <laughs> Versus saying, well, the Department of Interior should release all their data. <laughs> right. And like, what does that mean? You know, so. Yeah. There's a kind of telesco- a telescoping nature to technology. And I think that kind of bears out in campaigns as well. You mentioned radios, 30 years till television, which right. is another 30 or 40 years to the internet. And now we see huge innovation. I mean, yes, the internet has been around since the 90s, but it is entirely different from uh, from what it was. Starting maybe in 2004 with Howard Dean, things have changed. Uh, mm-hmm. Howard Dean used email to fundraise. Uh, Obama mastered that and used social media to you know bring people together to develop networks. It seems like every campaign comes with its own new innovation that fundamentally rocks how things are working. Do you think that 2016 is going to see another one of those steps? And do you, oh, do you know what, what, what that technology might be? Uh, I have ideas about what it might be. We'll see if events bear that out. But the, uh, each cycle, um, at least in the last several cycles, has had, as you say, an innovative technology that makes a difference but is also... Uh, you know, sort of so cutting edge that it's still kind of, uh, you know, it's it's untried. It's, it's maybe a little even jerry-rigged <laughs> because it's just so out there and you're kind of figuring it out as you go. Mm-hmm. You know, email fundraising in 04, for example, mm-hmm. you know, they did a lot well, but they also learned a lot compared to the mastery of it, as we saw in the cycles later. Um, the, you know, having a social account in 08, well, man, that's cool. You, you have an account on Facebook or these other platforms versus sort of the extensive targeted massive scale social engagement that occurred in 2012. Um, you know, some people would say that, you know, 2012 saw extensive use of big data, but I still believe perhaps that was the sort of the preview round of perhaps what will be the mastery of that in 2016. Um, so the question is, well, what's going to be the cutting edge set of items? There's so many, there's, variety of different contenders uh, for what that will be but i believe at at some level it will be due to the cross-section of uh the rise of mobile devices as just ever present uh in most of our society if you look at um, just the number of devices uh they've grown exponentially since 2012 even and that's going to have an inherent impact cross that with uh the increasing blur, increasingly blurred lines between different forms of media consumption, where what was once solidly in the vein of a TV ad or a radio ad, um, uh, those are still incredibly important platforms, of course, but they have they are less uh, siloed in the in terms of their how that media is consumed by the viewer mm-hmm. or the audience, um, and you see that of course with the you know the sort of the the crowd that um, that unplugs from cable or that gets all their viewing over the top via you know, streaming platforms and cord cutters, cord cutters. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's the word I'm trying to get to. And so, um, I don't know if that community is going to be large enough to determine everything, but I think uh, how you deal with that reality, um, kind of cross-sectioned with the rise of mobile, is going to be somewhere in that vein. Will be probably where the 
cool hip cutting edge items of the cycle will be and it'll be what all the panels are about in 2017 <laughs> <laughs> well we'll look forward to seeing seeing how it develops matt lear thanks so much for being on policycast today uh, thank you it's been a pleasure to be here you've been listening to the harvard kennedy school policycast produced by matt cadwallader and molly lanzarota follow us on twitter at policycast Thank you.